racial injustice, climate disruption, and COVID-19. How can art help us process these turbulent times? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. The story of climate change is typically told in the language of facts and figures, graphs and charts, but choreographer Alonzo King sees no distinction between logic and feeling. There is nothing that exists that you can create that does not have science. It's impossible. There's nothing that doesn't have music. It's impossible. Through dance, music, sculpture, and other media, artists can reach people on a deeper and more emotional level, designing cultural moments that can bring us together and bring us to tears. If I'm writing a, a study about climate change, I'm going to give you some data and some graphs and it's gonna be rather dry. I'm not going to cry, but I might if I'm giving you a work of art about climate change. Nora Lawrence is senior curator for Storm King Art Center outside New York City. I spoke with her and Alonzo King earlier this year about the ways that art can speak to us about climate change. We'll hear that conversation later in the program. But first, events of the past year, including the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other black citizens by police, have shown a glaring spotlight on the racism embedded in every aspect of American society. Environmental efforts are no exception. Communities of color are impacted first and worst by air pollution, climate-induced weather events, and economic upheaval. Earlier this year, as Black Lives Matter protests were making headlines across the country, I spoke with Mustafa Santiago Ali, Vice President of Environmental Justice at the National Wildlife Federation, Glinda Carr, President and CEO of Higher Heights for America, and Dr. Robert Bullard, Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University in Houston and recognized as the father of environmental justice. We began the conversation by connecting with our breath, something privileged people usually take for granted. COVID-19, which attacks the lungs, and the suffocation of Eric Garner and George Floyd at the hands of police have focused on breath and given it new meaning. Here's Dr. Bullard. The right to breathe clean air is a basic human right. And when you start taking away that right to breathe, you're taking away humanity. And when you're taking away just every day, uh, 24-7, the violence of dumping pollution into neighborhoods through smokestacks and families are waking up 2.30 in the morning because some accident, because of some plume that is rushing through their neighborhoods. They don't know if, and they're told to shelter in place and they don't know if they're gonna live or die. That's violence. It's the same kind of violence that we see the police violence that's, that's snuffing out uh, black lives. And, and killing people and, and creating this mental stress and trauma. When we see those videos daily and running, looping, 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 that is causing trauma, you know, which is PTSD. That kind of violence is taking its toll. And I think uh, everybody knows it now. These demonstrations are are really showing that not just in this country, around the world, that this is unjust, this is barbaric, and we need to stop it right now. Mustafa Santiago Ali, I was recently listening to an interview with uh, Brian Stevenson, and he was talking about how going to other countries, particularly, I guess, Germany, how they is actively encourage people to learn about the Holocaust. There's this national reckoning across generations. And it seems like this country hasn't had that reckoning yet. I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether America's really put this legacy of racism front and center like it should have. Well, I think America's afraid to, because if you put it front and center, if you integrate it into the educational system um, as a part of our history, both the dark days um, and, and where we are in, in this present moment, then you have to do something about it. And it's very difficult for America to admit that it was a part of genocide for our indigenous brothers and sisters. It's hard for America to also talk about snatching the lives of Africans and bringing them to this country so that you could have free labor. It's difficult for our country to also focus on the fact that they brought uh, Chinese uh, brothers and sisters over here to build the infrastructure on the railroads and then turn their back on them after that and ostracize them. So for America to truly 
be able to highlight the injustices, the systemic racism that we're talking about today, would then mean that you also have to figure out a way that you are going to address both those past and present uh, injustices that continue to happen. And that may come in the form of reparations. That may would definitely come in the form of making sure that there is legislation, both on the federal and the state level, that rectifies those situations. And that also means that there has to be resources placed into that overall equation because words without resources have little meaning. Um, so I think it's difficult for our country up to this moment to be able to actually honor uh, the lives that have been sacrificed so that this country could be in the positioning that it is. But I will also say that this is a new moment. This is a new time. And young people and many others are refusing to have the 21st century look like the previous centuries. So we have to see what that's going to actually look like. And of course, mobilization, uh, building coalitions, and, and many of the other uh, aspects that are necessary for true change to happen will have to all come together. Glenda Carr, the, the climate and, and environmental conversation is often separate from conversations about housing, jobs, equity, those sorts of things. How do you see them as connected? I mean, racism is everywhere and carbon pollution is everywhere. They're both systemic problems, but they're often thought of as separate. At the end of the day, you know, we will continue to have siloed conversations. I do think for us to step into the mo this moment where we can truly reimagining an America we can all believe in, we have to look at the intersectionality of this moment. Um, and at the end of the day, Black women want what white women want, who want what Black men want, who want what white men and our other um, communities of color want. We want economically thriving, educated, and healthy, safe communities. Um, and if we could meet, you know, in the intersection to be able to talk about the nuances of that and, and, and why we haven't been able to, to achieve that. And part of the reason why we haven't been able to achieve that is because of the ability not to have brave conversations about the inequalities in this country. And so what has happened, you know, with the, I think the intersection, when you talk about meeting at the intersection in 2020, we are in 2020 with the backdrop of COVID-19 and like literally breaking open the racial disparities on mainstream TV and our, our social platforms about how COVID-19 is impacting communities of color. Then insert, you know, a continued drumbeat on the attack of Blackness and then insert an, yet another conversation about the Amy Coopers of the world racializing the ability for a Black man to walk in Central Park as a bird watcher. All of those pieces have now hit an intersection that we can truly have conversations about how do we talk about the intersectionality of, you know, raising the next generation of whole Americans. And that has to be a connection about my ability to economically thrive my ability to ensure that my children are educated, to um, um, to imagine a world where we are all safe um, and that it's not just the color of our skin that dictates our ability to walk down the street and not be afraid of not being able to come home. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about racism and climate change. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Dr. Robert Bullard of Texas Southern University, Glinda Carr of Higher Heights for America, and Mustafa Santiago Ali of the National Wildlife Federation. Mustafa previously worked at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for 24 years, but he's been outspoken about the fact that when it comes to meeting the needs of communities of color, the EPA has fallen short. I've often said that anytime policy is being created, it should be coming from uh, local people, local communities, local organizations, and should be evaluated by those same organizations to make sure that it's meeting the needs. And we should not necessarily be having people have to come to Washington. You should be in their communities, in their meetings, listening. That's the first thing. Uh, and then sitting down with folks and, and following through with the translation of what they are asking for. And that is true whether we're in Appalachia, we're in the Rust Belt, we're on the Gulf Coast. No matter where we are, we have to make sure that that's actually happening. And I think it doesn't matter what administration it is. You know, folks sometimes fall short. Now, of course, this administration... The, the words falling short does not even begin to equate, um, you know, the lack of understanding, vision, 
uh, and just the basicness that is needed just for survival. Um, but yes, you know, we have to make sure that we are honoring the voice of the communities. Dr. Bullard um, and, and many others, when I was coming up, I always remember, you know, sitting outside, listening to the meetings they were having. And the most important thing was that, you know, communities speak for themselves. So if we can get politicians, whether on the federal level or, or the state level or the county or the local level to understand that basic concept, we would stop wasting money and we would stop making mistakes by creating policy that is not meeting the needs of everyday people. Carter Roberts is CEO of WWF, one of the largest conservation organizations in the world with annual revenues of $300 million. After the national response to George Floyd's murder by police, he held an all-staff meeting to discuss the response of the organization, which was founded by European monarchs. I asked him what he heard at that meeting. Our African-American leaders told stories they'd never told in public before like that, that gave voice to what it was like to have uh, a son or a husband or a nephew that you worried about every day. And they gave voice to the injustice that they face every day. And, um, and the re response of our entire staff was a tidal wave of conviction that we need to do more to address that systemic justice. I grew up in Atlanta in, um, in the city of Martin Luther King and Andrew Young and Ralph Abernathy. And I thought we had made more progress than we have. I've led an organization where we have devoted ourselves to working with indigenous people and communities in far-flung places like the Congo or Namibia or Indonesia or uh, Nepal and Bhutan, or here at home in Alaska with tribal corporations and in the Northern Great Plains with tribes and ranchers. But it was clear to me we have not done enough with that most unique of American narratives and experiences and tension and roots, which is the African-American experience. So we have the largest social media presence of any environmental group and the largest brand. Yes, I think of the, you know, the, the, the panda bear, when you mentioned WWF, for some reason, I think of Prince Charles. Uh, Thanks a lot. Yeah, if we sound like an elite group of people saving fuzzy animals, but you know, our, our mission has evolved over time. Our mission now is to build a future in which people and nature both flourish. And the power in our organization is devolved to local offices and, um, uh, that are led by local people uh, all over the world. Alex Ohanian, who's married to Serena Williams, uh, resigned from the board of Reddit, a company that he co-founded and encouraged the board uh, to place a, a Black person in his place. Is it time for some white people on environmental boards to step off and say, replace me with a person of color? I think it's time for white people like myself to ensure that the voices of African-Americans, people of color, indigenous communities are heard. And if that means stepping down from the stage that you're on and, and insisting that someone else take your place. And I think it means um, boards to look in the mirror and, um, and, and see everything they need to do to make sure those voices are heard. I think this begins with listening. That was Carter Roberts, CEO of WWF. Uh, Dr. Bullard, I'd like to hear your response there to basically saying they overlooked people in their own backyard. Well, you know, we have been saying that for decades. And uh, in, in educating students, uh, I've taught at big white schools and I've taught at historically black universities. And I encourage uh, young people to do study abroad, which is very important. But I also encourage them to explore the, the possibilities of what's on across town. And I think to, for, uh, too often, uh, we have overlooked those issues that are, that are close to home and somehow think that America has somehow uh, overcome many of the issues that are being dealt with abroad, such as poverty and hunger 
and uh, and looking at uh, the issues of political prisoners, et cetera. Uh, the the fact that we have been also in our environmental justice movement has been talk have been talking about uh, people speaking for themselves and developing uh, resources that will have the capacity for people to speak for themselves. And we've really chastised uh, a lot of these uh, large green groups, or they used to be in the 90s, we call them the Big Ten, for sucking up all the green dollars and uh, from foundations, private foundations, and, and, and supposedly doing the work for everybody. But we know the work that gets done in a lot of communities of color is done by communities of color, indigenous communities that get very little share of the, do of the dollars. You know, the studies done in 2002, people called the environmental justice group got 4.5% of the green dollars. Uh, in 2020, I think it's 15%. Uh, in 25 years, this country will be majority people of color. We shouldn't wait to 2045 for us to transition to do justice in terms of not just diversity in terms of these um, large organizations on the boards and the staffs. That's okay. But we also should talk about diversifying the dollars, where the dollars flow should be where the needs are, and building those capacities of people of color groups and indigenous groups and women of color groups, et cetera. That's how you make change. And that's what we have been saying for a long time. Green 2.0, looking at diversity and the, and, and the boardrooms and then the boards, et cetera. That's good. Uh, but we also be looking at where the money, as, as uh, folks would say on the street, where the money at? Who's getting them dollars and how that flows? Makes a difference. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about racism and climate change. Coming up, addressing the need for more diverse leadership in environmental efforts. When we look at all the major green groups, we don't see an African-American or a Latinx person leading any of those. But the Heritage Foundation, they actually have an African-American woman who runs that. If they can do it, how is it that these organizations that focus on environmental, conservation, climate can't do it? This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about race and climate in America. My guests are Dr. Robert Bullard, professor at Texas Southern University, Glinda Carr of Higher Heights for America, and Mustafa Santiago Ali of the National Wildlife Federation. A Bloomberg report last year found that the fossil fuel industry is much more ethnically diverse than the clean energy sector. For example, the solar industry had a quarter of a million workers, 75% of whom were white. Another study reports that communities of color have a lower rate of rooftop solar adoption. I asked Mustafa to help explain the disparity. Well, you know, there's a saying, if you're going to talk about it, be about it. And, you know, it's really interesting that, and I've said this before, and, I, and I've had some pushback from some folks, you know, it's not only workers uh, inside of this new green, clean economy, because that's one, you know, people love for us to be focused on that. And that is an important conversation. The other part of it is ownership, because ownership then means that you can prioritize, you can make the right decisions, um, and, and you can make sure that your services and your resources can then be anchored in certain communities and can revolve around inside of those communities. And that is a missing part of this conversation. It's almost like the conversation that we have, and, and Dr. Bullard touched on it a little bit there. When we look at all the major green groups, we don't see an African-American or a Latinx person leading any of those, but the Heritage Fund or the Heritage Foundation, they actually have an African-American woman who runs that. Now, I don't agree with the policies that they support and they move forward on, but if they can do it, how is it that these organizations that focus on environmental conservation, climate can't do it? Um, and then of course we flip the coin over and we look at the clean economy and we don't see folks doing the right things yet in that space. It's important. The work that can come out of there is important. Us, you know, transitioning from fossil fuels is important, but it's also as important that we don't take this, you know, a paradigm from one impacting negative side and then transfer that to the green side. So we got to make sure that we don't, uh, you know, continue the sins of the past, if I can say it that way. 
Glenda Carr, on that point about the Heritage Foundation, uh, Condi Rice is the new head of the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, very bastion of conservative thinking, uh, you know, going back uh, for, for decades. How do you feel about that? Do you, is there an expectation that uh, women of color are always progressive? Are you happy to get conservative women of color in power, too? You know, Black women aren't a monolithic voting block. We're not a monolithic leadership. And for me, a diverse decision-making table, regardless of where it fits in my, my, my political ideology, still makes better decisions. And so being able to ensure that if we're looking at this just from a, from a two-political idealism spectrum, conservative to progressives, we need to be pushing both um, spectrums to ensure that their leadership looks diverse and looks like America. And then for, for me is that I have no problem being able to be in a brave conversation where we put, push our counterparts um, to be better on issues or center, center our communities in those issues. So no, I think that we should ensure that each decision-making table is, is diverse so that um, th she still has uni a unique experience as a Black woman in America that she's bringing to a table that would, without her leadership, be void of a discussion about race and gender. Mustafa Santiago Ali, you work with the National Wildlife Federation, which is sometimes called the hook and bullet crowd. You know, you think of uh, kind of a white man in plaid with a shotgun. You know, how are, how are you reaching out to those people to connect on environmental issues? And can you talk to them about environmental justice issues? Well, you know, we just had a, a vote at our board meeting and 97 percent of the board was in favor of the environmental justice movements uh, that we're going forward on. We are the only organization that has a full environmental justice analysis that's taking place for all of its policy programs, activities, and budgeting decisions. So those are important steps. But, you know, we also got progressives that are part of the base, the six million members, and you got the good old boys and good old girls who are part of it also. So what I do is I just keep it real with folks. That same pollution that is killing black and brown folks um, in the city is the same pollution that is impacting the national parks that you say that you care about so much. So you should be standing in solidarity with the folks who are dealing with the initial impacts because you're getting the secondary impacts. When we talk about water quality issues, we go through the impacts that are happening again in black and brown and indigenous communities. And that's the same pollution once again that is impacting if you're a fisherman. So there is those intersection points that exist um, you just have to make the decision if you want to stand in solidarity with those who've been doing the work for decades or not. Uh, and we're lucky that, uh, no, we're not lucky. There's work that has been done by folks long before I ever got there uh, to plant the seeds. Um, so, you know, we are continuing to water those uh, and, and move forward. I'm going to end with uh, two questions from uh, YouTube, both Sharon and Susan ask, what gives you hope to continue to do this very critical work? And do you have hope that we will actually move forward to equality? Glinda, what gives you hope? Um, so I don't have children of my own, um, but my godchildren give me hope. It is about ensuring that we are, you know, leaving in America that is better than what we came from. Like I um, had the... Um, privilege of growing up with four generations in my family. My great-grandmother, who was born in 1895 and died shy of her 100th birthday, Carrie Lee Dickens, we all lived in the same community. And so she dreamt a dream bigger for me and my brothers that she could have ever imagined, right? Or that we could have ever imagined. Here's a woman that didn't have a right to own property, that only had a third-rate education. But she knew that she could use her voice and her activism in a way that created a pathway better for me and my brothers. And I'll leave this with you, Ida B. Wells. She once said, the way you write a wrong is to turn the light of truth on it. And I think that is what we continue to do and strive for. Mustafa, what gives you hope? Seeing so many different types of people coming together in, in authentic ways uh, and seeing people not just utilize words, but actually being willing to put their bodies on the line uh, to make sure that justice becomes a reality, that systemic racism ends. It reminds me of the pictures that I've seen because I wasn't there at the time of the early days of the environmental justice movement in Warren County, North Carolina, when people were literally willing to lay down in the roads to stop trucks from coming into their communities. That level of dedication is what is the fire underneath of a movement. And, and I'm just blessed to be in, alive at this time and to be able to be a part 
uh, of change that is actually happening. Dr. Bullard, last word on hope. Well, what gives me hope is that uh, young people that are fearless and willing to commit and risk it all for the, the sake of justice and dismantling this violent system of racism. And I see that happening uh, right now. And uh, I, I think this is, this is the time to allow that, that space and that leadership to transition and transform uh, this country. It's enough of them to do it and enough of us together to do it. This is Climate One. We've been talking about racism and the environment with Glinda Carr, president and CEO of Higher Heights for America, Mustafa Santiago Ali, vice president of environmental justice at the National Wildlife Federation, and Dr. Robert Bullard, distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University and recognized as the father of environmental justice. We turn now to the role of the artist in interpreting climate disruption. My next two guests are finding ways through art to help us see, feel, and express the complicated emotions brought up by an unstable climate. Nora Lawrence is senior curator for the Storm King Art Center in the Hudson Valley outside New York City. She curated Storm King's 2018 exhibition titled Indicators, Artists on Climate Change. Alonzo King is a visionary choreographer and founder of the Alonzo King Lines Ballet a contemporary dance company that tours the world, often collaborating with artists from other realms. King grew up in Georgia, where his parents were active in the civil rights movement and worked with Dr. Martin Luther King. From an early age, he was shaped by a community of idealism and activism and nourished by a deep connection to nature. I think that human beings, we are out of rhythm when we live in cities. And we see skyscrapers instead of the sky. One thing about a landscape, and there's so few anymore, where, you, where, where there's not electric lights and the stars become dominant at night and that, that, that carpet of sky is so humbling, you feel minuscule. And that is an important thing to feel, to feel that you are a grain of sand. And when you're in nature a lot, there's a presence that slowly becomes apparent. At first, for most city dwellers, when you get to nature, you resist. And it takes a while. You don't even know you're resisting. And then once you begin to let go and really surrender, there is a presence that is felt. You step into a clock pattern. Sunset and sunrise, you can feel it before they even happen. And so there's a tuning in that, tunes you into the cosmic clock. And that is really curing, healing, and informative. Nora Lawrence, Storm King occupies about 500 acres of rolling hills and woods an hour outside New York City. How did you approach curating an exhibition that conveys the climate emergency through sculpture? I felt like it was really important to have the experience of climate be an embodied experience for Storm King visitors, to use our beautiful site and our incredible site as a, a reminder of, of the stakes at play. Uh, we have all different types of natural environments at Storm King. We have two ponds, we have woods, we have um, great meadows, we have lots and lots of acres of native grasses. And so to really allow people to um, have what Alonzo, I think, was just describing of the that um, experience of letting yourself go into nature while also thinking about the climate crisis was something that um, we didn't want to lose, that uh, it wasn't about an indoor exhibition entirely that, that just had um, photographs of other places, um, but really using our landscape and our environment as a way to let the climate crisis really hit home, that it is here as well as elsewhere, as well as in the Arctic, et cetera. Alonzo King, when you think about climate change, what comes to mind for you as an artist, there's so much information and so much grief, so much loss. How do you process that as an artist? I think that it reduces to something as complicated and as huge as it is. It really, in its reduction, and which is the art process, which is so interesting, is that you are talking about ideas that are so big and you have to you have to reduce them into symbology. You have to make them a sort of an algebra. 
uh, so that symbols are really are uh, reference for things that are much larger or words don't have the capacity to really grasp. But when you reduce what we've done to the climate, what, what we've done to this planet, it is selfishness and greed, plain and simple, plain and simple, selfishness and greed. And it comes from the irony of not knowing who and what we are and thinking that ourselves is our bodies. And our bodies are not ourselves, they're separate. It also is an error in education because we don't know what human beings are. We're not those bodies, we're souls playing roles. And if people were to recognize that human beings are valuable, just the fact that they were born. I meet tons of people all the time who lament the fact that they feel worthless unless they have a degree from this place, unless they have this amount of money, unless they have celebrity. This is a horrible, horrible education. And so if this is the thinking of the masses, and it is, then we have set up a caste system where a certain kind of people are important and other people are less important or not important at all. The same mechanism, the same thinking has what has made art elitist and separate and ivory tower away from the common herd of eaters. And that has to be destroyed. I look at it that every human being, if they are serious about their life, is some kind of artist. And my definition is, and I think people really should look at, at words and find their own definition, meaning they should search for what is the essence of this idea? How do I see it? And I see that art is the knowledge of how things are done, bottom line, whether that's the art of government, whether it's crops, whether it's um, how to treat people. And the highest art is the art of living. Emerson said so beautifully that the, the goal of art is higher than art itself, meaning that through that culture and practice, we would reveal ourselves as human masterpieces and, and that that is the aim. And so the separation of caste that we have set up in terms of humans being low and high, important, non-important, same way that we do art, it is a horror. And so we're missing an internal dialogue. We're missing what St. John calls the seven candles, what yogis call the, the chakras in the body. We're missing that staircase of wonder and limitless potential. And of course, that will come to the fore. That will come through the, to the fore through science, through the practice of yoga, through people who during this pandemic are forced to examine their lives. They can't run away into busyness. They have to examine, what am I doing? What do I want to change? What do I want to contribute to the world? How do I want to depart from the world and, feel, and look back and say, well done? These are the important questions, and this is the artistic life. It, this is the artistic way that kind of self-reform of the painting of the book, of the, of the choreography, and the human being. Nor I'd like to get your response to a, a lot in there, including um, you know, how art can take something so massive as climate change and bring it down to a human scale and something we can kind of, you know, uh, we can respond to that's more relatable, even if it's a little bit abstract. Absolutely. And I think um, one one work that was very uh, well loved in our exhibition was by an artist named Jenny Kendler, who I think did that also in a way that that you were just speaking of, uh, Alonzo. Uh, she used the term human exceptionalism, this idea that it, as humans, we're not allowing ourselves to be part of nature, right? And it lets us make these decisions to extract whatever we're extracting from that mountain or kill all those fish or do whatever we need to do because we don't think of ourselves as just another species. So she did this project called Birds Watching, and she made a uh, hundred large-scale replicas of the eyes of different birds that are endangered or threatened with extinction because of climate change within the next 50 years. 
And she put these hundred eyes out and they were on kind of the same reflective material. They were full color, but the same reflective material as highway signs. So if you were to take a, a iPhone shot of them with a flash or something, they'd flash back at you. So they have kind of this um, nature that that is also looking back at you. And they're the eyes. So they're saying, you know, what's different between you and the birds, right? Um, how can you just make this category for yourself called bird and not even think that these are individuals as well? And I think that that helps people. I, I think that zeroing in on these moments beyond what, what you referenced, Alonzo, at the beginning of what you were saying is just this kind of mass of, of um, horror, right? Or this, this thing that's just way too big for us to kind of... Um, keep in mind all the time. But if we look at different parts of it, we can sort of uh, use that almost um, as a synecdoche for the whole, right? And, and think about something bigger as well. And I think that's really important for people to be able to do. And that's something that art can help with. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about connecting with a heated world through art. Coming up, the role of artists in the pandemic era. I think people really crave art, and I don't think it's for an escapist reason. I think it's for self-care. I think it's for enlightenment. I think it's for bridging something that speaks beyond today. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about seeing climate change through the artist's eyes. My guests are Alonzo King, choreographer and founder of Alonzo King Lines Ballet, and Nora Lawrence, senior curator at the Storm King Art Center. Before we continue our conversation about dance, sculpture, and other art forms, let's consider what music of climate change sounds like. In 2018, classical composer Adam Schoenberg was commissioned by the San Francisco Symphony to write a percussion concerto. He didn't have the environment in mind as a topic, but while on a plane to San Francisco, Schoenberg happened to read a New York Times Magazine article titled, Losing Earth, The Day We Almost Stopped Climate Change. And it was a horrifying article to read. And when I got off the plane, I just knew that somehow the percussion concerto was going to be a response to the idea of climate change, or really the fear of climate change, especially you know, now being a father of two young boys. You know, it's complicated as a composer because at the end of the day, my job is still to write a piece of music that can stand on its own just as a piece of music. And so the piece just begins with the bass drums literally traveling around the hall going, do 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 And then a big grand pause of just silence. I disrupt the orchestra by literally stopping the orchestra. And those disruptions are meant to evoke all the natural disasters that are occurring around us so that we actually snap out of our own little bubble and start to be aware of what's happening around our surroundings. The second section is dubbed as this underwater world, as if, you know, what's happening with our receding coastlines and the sea levels rising. And then the third movement, or the third section, I should say, is really the virtuosic dance-like movement, which is really the call to arms, where the orchestra wakes up and is sort of saying, what is going on? What makes music so universal is that it is its own language, there is its own vocabulary, but it's not a language or vocabulary that everyone has to speak. You just sort of feel it. And so I think without any information, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's about climate change. but. For me, it's all about artistic integrity and doing work that you wholeheartedly believe in and feel that you can put your best foot forward. That was composer Adam Schoenberg, who wrote the concerto Saving Earth, performed by the San Francisco Symphony in 2019. Nora Lawrence, is art meaningful if you don't really know it's about climate? Can it really be a vehicle 
for social change or is it just an insider thing? I saw that piece, by the way, at the San Francisco Symphony. It was astounding. Of course, I was thinking with climate eyes, but if you didn't have those climate eyes on, I'm not sure that art would really enlighten you. I I see it a little differently and maybe uh, I just reverse it a bit because to me, there's one thing that Adam said in there. I just wanted to make a great piece of music or I needed to make the best piece of music I could. And that's so critical. Um, Bad art is never going to get anybody to figure out more about it. But good art, I think, um, and art that really moves people and that he knows he put in his absolute um, best effort to, that's what's going to get somebody. They might not have come in. um, They don't have a climate podcast, right? They didn't come in with your perspective, but it doesn't mean that people aren't going to learn a little bit more and find out a little bit more about that piece if it's great. So I think that can also be extremely helpful because I think one thing that can go wrong with climate art is uh, I think sometimes if it really hits people over the head, it doesn't mean it's affecting people. It doesn't mean it's really moving them or bringing them along with the artist or anything. Um, One artist in our show, Hara Waltz, she's an artist. She's also a biologist. And one thing she had said is, if I'm writing a, a study about climate change, I'm going to give you an essay. I'm going to give you some data and some graphs, and it's going to be rather dry. I'm not going to cry, but I might if if I'm giving you a work of art about climate change. I, I might show more of myself. I might do something different that inspires something else in you besides a certain part of your brain. And Lonzo King, I've had many climate conversations where I've described things. It's very similar to what Nora just said, where climate started with physics and chemistry in outer space. And it came to like smokestacks and tailpipes and the way we use energy. And it's very cerebral and technocratic. And I've often said, we need arts and other, we need to reach people's hearts and make them cry, as Nora said. Is that right, though, that, that, that you, you, know, you might see it differently, that the rational mind is, is, reaches people in a different way than, than the emotion of art? I think that the, again, for me, it always, it comes back to the human. And we are imbalanced and we are denatured. We have a balancing act between logic and feeling. In their highest realms, the union of the merging of those two, the marriage of those two, again, is met through intuition. There is nothing that exists that you can create that does not have science. It's impossible. There's nothing that doesn't have music. It's impossible. At one time, music was categorized as a science in the Middle Ages. It was a science. That's, that's what that category of, of study was. So in a, in a low stage, the idea of logic can be dry, calculated, predictable. The idea of feeling can be indulgent, chaotic, illegible. And those have to be elevated, again, through a human evolution of awareness and the language of these communications, be it science, be it, be it art, because they're, they're really married. They're not, they're not separate, is, again, a problem of education. If I need a docent to tell me about the experience I'm having, that's a problem. Because it either means that I'm not comfortable with my own intuitive perspective, as every artist would want you to be. This is what I say, but what do you say and what do you see? And famously, as Chopin would say, I can't listen to what Liszt is doing to my sonata. He was in awe of his interpretation. And so that engagement comes from people who from childhood were seeing paintings, were not going just to exhibits, they were painting themselves, they were dancing themselves, they were playing instruments. And the internal world of the awe and wonder of children gets cut off through that dangerous bridge of taking them out of wonder into what we call law and logic. But in reality, they work together. Nora Lawrence, 
we're at a time where a lot of people are reconsidering lots of things, including art and whether it is an essential service now. Uh, museums are closed. You know, Alonzo just said they art is vital. You know, we've cut arts education in, in a lot of America. So how is art being reconsidered now uh, in the era of COVID? Wow. Okay. So big question. I mean, I think one thing is that artists are still working. Uh, I think people really crave art and I don't think it's for an escapist reason. I think it's for a whole number of reasons. I think it's for self-care. I think it's for enlightenment. I think it's for bridging something that speaks beyond today right? I think there there are so many things right now that it's so easy to get sort of just um, completely obsessed with and bogged down with and involved in. But um, art, I think, uh, I love that, uh, Alonzo, the way you spoke about the universe and these different stars and just thinking about how much more is out there is something that I think art can do for people. Uh, I was also thinking, you know, if you think microcosmically, macrocosmically, even stars fall, right? I mean, there are these these lifespans of um, everything out there. So I think that's that's one way to think about it, Greg. Uh, I know we had also uh, talked a little bit about monuments falling and what all of this means right now in the context both of COVID, of um, racial justice. And I think um, that's another thing to really think about and a thing that I think is really important and really inspiring. I mean, I was looking at a Confederate monument today um, during a a panel that I was watching and um, how now what it has is, is no statue atop it. And then just all of this other art, right. All of this um, painting that's, that's come in on top of that. And, you know, this isn't new. It reminds me of the Berlin wall, right. I think there, there's so much there and there's so much happening. And I think the response that people are are having and thinking about in terms of what should be taking up our public space is really important and i think also shows the ways in which people are are thinking about how art should be used and and um, what types of art should should be in our way right we have a question from the audience uh the becky mcgarvey uh, for alonzo king you know how can we make art that highlights the connection with others in a time when we are being socially distant I think that tons of people have flooded museum sites to look at works, gone to sites to see dance, gone to deep reading of books to become enlightened and learn more about themselves vis-a-vis the world. What Nora's bringing up brings up the question to me, who is being talked to? Who are we talking to? Who are we not including? And that for me means, again, looking at the past, that how we've behaved and how to fix it. If the colonizers come into a country and don't recognize intelligence in the way crops are growing, in the knowledge of what plants can heal, which these people held in the invisible mounds that were created by the uh, the Native Americans here, all of these brilliant levels of intelligences that were just wiped out and ignored. I mean, that's shocking. And so in that same way, who are we talking to and who are we ignoring is a big deal. And it goes back to that question again of do we revere people? How do we look at people? And that tells everything. And to the, the question, I would say that what art is doing is it is, it's like, um, what is it like? It's like a tuning fork. And it's especially needed for people who live in cities. It's curious that people who are farmers, agrarian, or they're in nature all the time, that is art. <laughs> that is the great work of the divine mother. And so in cities where there's concrete and skyscrapers, we need that nurturing in another way. And individually, that same kind of nurturing can come from what the art is. The the truth is, is that the art is within the artist. 
And that pool of information, that pool of accessibility is when the mind quiets itself from distraction, when the, the jabbering roommate that's in your head shuts up, and there's a sense of expansion, everyone should take the time to find that. Because art is within everybody. Everyone should find that, that place of quietness, that place of solitude, and that place of information. Every, every artist talks about it. There becomes a quietness, the noise settles down, expansion comes in, and then you're swimming in a playful pool of knowledge and information. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about seeing climate change through the artist's eyes. My guests were Alonzo King, choreographer and founder of Alonzo King Lines Ballet in San Francisco, and Nora Lawrence, senior curator at Storm King Art Center in New York's Hudson Valley. Our conversation was generously underwritten by the Sidney E. Frank Foundation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please tell a friend or help us get people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.